So the teachers um, invited me to offer a desana tonight, and I was really happy to do that. <laughs> this is probably my most favorite day of the retreat. And uh, really, I guess, uh, having a sense of what you're going through right now, having done it a number of times myself. And I expect that you're probably buzzing a bit <laughs> from talking and, and eating and just kind of going out there for the first time. So. Uh, I wanted to keep it light. I'm buzzing a bit myself. <laughs> so I thought I'd talk tonight about um, a topic that is very light and that it feels very good. It's a very good feeling. It's good to reflect upon. It's good to think about. Uh, but it's no less significant in the Buddhist teachings. Can you hear okay? Um, and it, this is the topic of uh, punya, or merit, the accumulation of merit and the sharing of merit. And I'd like to talk a little bit about it and then uh, have us do a chant that's a really appropriate chant to do at this time in the retreat uh, that involves the sharing of the merit of all the good deeds that we have been performing for the last uh, six to twelve weeks. <laughs> So punya, it's, it's the performing of good actions, the performing of good deeds, and really dwelling in a state of goodness. It's highly, highly valued in the Buddhist teachings uh, because really it, along with the experience of wisdom and understanding, makes it possible for us to realize nirvana. And it, the Pali word is punya, such a sweet word just in and of itself. Uh, it means merit, it means virtue, it means meritorious actions. And it's often used interchangeably with something that you've probably heard a lot during the retreat, which is kusala karma, wholesome deeds, wholesome actions. Now, I've spent a, lot of, a, a fair amount of time in Buddhist monasteries over the years, and uh, particularly, uh, really, the ones in England. I haven't been to Asia, but I've been to the monasteries in England that are those that are uh, the satellites of Ajahn Chah's monasteries in Asia. And I've been a lot around lay supporters uh, from the Asian communities. And uh, I've been very moved by their experience of punya, their understanding of meritorious action and the way that they uh, perform good deeds. And really, there have been a number of times where I've just been totally swept up by the feeling at the monastery. Asian Buddhists, really, who have grown up with Buddhism as their base religion, they put a lot of stock in uh, punya. It, it really forms the basis of their religious commitment. And generosity in supporting um, the, the sangha, in supporting the monks and nuns, providing for their requisites, and really supporting the printing of a lot of the Dhamma literature that we receive here. Some of the best books that I have in my library are things that have been um, given to me. They're things that have been supported by uh, uh, Buddhists who have uh, provided for the printing of these documents. And they're fabulous. You know, they're the kinds of books, I know you have some yourself, you're, you're always referring to these as some of the best teachings in Buddhism that we have today. 
Uh, and generally, they, they just uh, see them. This is a very active or very uh, main part of their, or maybe even a, a definition of their lives as lay Buddhists. It's very tied up with the experience of ta- dana and generosity. Now, Westerners, I know this has been my experience, when we come into contact them, with them, we're often very impressed by the strong goodness in their hearts and the outpouring of this generosity, uh, especially at the monasteries. And this was certainly my experience. There was a, a, I spent a lot of time at Amaravati uh, in, uh, in England, and there was a Thai woman who used to come there. Her name was Wantana. And she would come, um, when I was there one time for six months, she came virtually every week. And she always came with these bags and bags and bags of goodies. And sometimes she drove. But lots of times she came by uh, train and then uh, by cab. And she had this little uh, buggy, a little two-wheel cart that she'd have full, you know. She'd come into the monastery. And then when she entered, uh, often I was in the kitchen and she would come in the back door that way. And there, there was like this, the whole place would light up. She would come in and she'd go, oh, Gloria, Gloria, look at what I have, look at what I have, you know. And, and she'd start pulling everything out and putting it on the table and showing me. And, and it was so clear that she had spent a tremendous amount of time preparing goodies, whether it was goodies to eat or gifts to give to them, and that they were all really, really special. You know, foods were prepared that looked like works of art, you know. And she would explain to me, I... I um, would ask her to teach me because they were so delicious too, you know, uh, how she prepared some of these things. And they would be puddings that had to be simmered and boiled for, you know, all day and involved layering and, and all kinds of incredibly complicated uh, formations. But she was just, she loved it. You know, she just had that feeling. She just loved it. And when I was with her, you know, she was just a little pipsqueak, and I often had that feeling of just wanting to pick her up and just hug her, you know, and hold her really close to me because she was so kind, so loving, so good, and so generous. And then she'd come sometimes with other family members. She'd bring her kids and her grandchildren. She was about 80 years old. And... Uh, they were like clones of her. <laughs> they looked like her, besides looking a lot like her. They all had this same kind of spirit. You know, they were just full of love. And they, they couldn't wait to give. And they couldn't give enough. And yet you always had this feeling that, um, at least in this case, they, they weren't really... Uh, they were taking care of themselves as well. They weren't giving beyond their means, but they were giving the best that they could. You know? And other people would come, and it was clear when they would unpack like goodies, they'd stop at the bakery on the way in to bring things for the monks and nuns. And, you know, it, they weren't just getting the little glazed donuts, you know. <laughs> they, were, they were getting the fancy cakes with all the beautiful icings. And it was, to me, at least from where I sat, it was the best. It was always the best. And that's what they wanted to offer. And I found this incredibly inspiring. You know, it would make me giddy. I could get high, like a contact high just being with them. And uh, it, was, it was like it, it had this contagious effect. You know, it, it not only filled the, them, it filled the room that they were in and it sort of just kind of grabbed hold of, of everybody around. And, and they were very happy. 
with this as their definition of what it meant to be a lay Buddhist. Similarly, when I went to Chidhurst, I I, uh, have gone to Chidhurst uh, for about four or five of the winter retreats. And I like to go at that time of year. It's especially great because it's uh, in uh, January and February. It's when the uh, monks and nuns go on retreat. And a few uh, lay uh, practitioners can come and, and do the retreat with them, you know, if we, if we help serve it. So uh, Chithurst is small, and it's, it's nice, it's very intimate, and it usually means that uh, there might be one or two other people there, so uh, other lay people besides the, the Sangha, and I like, I like that feeling. Uh, but they have a, a very strong support from um, the Asian community nearby. A lot of people have actually moved to the area. One woman has moved there under direct uh, uh, request from Ajahn Chah before he died. You know, and he said, you must move to England and you must support my sangha there. You know? <laughs> so she did. <laughs> you know? and, and she bought a, a, a pub down the road. <laughs> and so it's very interesting because the, the monks and nuns, uh, nuns go out on Pindapod and they go down to the uh, pub. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's wonderful to see the practice brought there. But anyway, um, during this uh, retreat, there's also a group of um, Thai restaurant owners who live in Guilford. And uh, uh, they always come and provide the meal on Mondays during the winter retreat. And th- that's the day their restaurant is closed. So I, you know, Monday mornings, <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of a greed type <laughs> and I love food, <laughs> you know. Monday mornings I would wake up and I would just, oh, it's Monday. Oh. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> it's, uh, I knew it was coming, you know. And these people would uh, come with the most incredible delicacies. They were artists with, you know, the, the way that they cut and prepared foods. Uh, so that every dish, besides being un- incredibly delicious, you know, it, it looked like flowers and bouquets and birds and clouds, and you know, you didn't want to touch it. It was so so gorgeously presented, as well as being delicious. And you know, I would do the simple math on this because we served the meal at 10:30, and Guilford was like an hour and a half away, and. It was very clear, in spite of the fact that they were restaurant owners, that this food that they were bringing was not yesterday's leftovers. You know, it, it, so, somebody got up that morning and prepared it, and uh, just doing the math on it, you, you had to realize that they were getting up before dawn. You know, to do this, and uh, and then they brought it with the baskets and the platters and the flowers and the whole family. You know, and uh, often I was working in the kitchen, so it was my job to sort of be there and, and help them to put it all out. And this was a slightly different scene because it was during the monastic retreat. And so they would come in like in utter silence. And the, the meditation hall was right next door. And often the monks and nuns said that they, they didn't, they would think, oh, they aren't coming because they never heard them. This whole entourage of sometimes 15 people would enter the kitchen and put all the food out, uh, this incredible display, and you would never hear them, you know. <laughs> they were like little mice. And 
uh, the the offerings in addition to the food that they were bringing was just unbelievable. You know, flowers. This group was particularly into gorgeous flowers, and they 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 weren't just getting the carnations. You know, <laughs> they were bringing the, the the lilies and the orchids and these gorgeous, gorgeous things. And I loved it. You know, I just it, it felt so so good. And then um, at Amravati, when I was there for a long time, for a period of about six months, there was this other group that often came, and um, they came from London. We used to call them the double-decker Donna, <laughs> because they'd rent one of those big red double-decker buses and uh, come all the way from London um, with tons of people and sacks of rice and bushels of vegetables and you know, shaving cream and deodorant and toilet paper and paper towels and, you know, just all the very, the basic needs for uh, the Sangha. And, um, you know, I was a novice to all this. I had never seen anything like this. You know, it it just was in such a a contrast to what I had grown up with, which was, you know, sort of passing the plate at at Sunday. And... uh, and that was, I mean, that's lovely, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not putting that down, but, um, it, you know, it, it just uh, wasn't very direct, you know. And it certainly didn't have this kind of feel to it. And I thought, what a lovely thing to look at the people that I'm making an offering to and to kind of think, well, what might they need? Well, they shave their heads, they'll need some shaving cream, and they'll need some shave blades, and, you know, and just to really have it that kind of intimate contact with, um, offering, you know, this is what this is what they need, and uh, what can I bring it, bring them, you know. And so I, I was very, very uh, moved by all of this, very inspired, and you know, little by little, I started to get that that uh, sense of wanting to do it. You know, hey, what what's going on here? I want to understand this. I want I want to know where this comes from, and and how to do it myself. Because, you know, the way that we're coming to Buddhism is quite di- is a little different, you know. It's not that this, this isn't uh, possible and we don't have this kind of thing in us, but really, uh, as Western Buddhists, we really um, tend to locate the, the kind of the focal point of our um, spiritual commitment more in the practice of the meditation, you know, and uh, uh, really the study of the Buddhist teachings, that angle. Um, and... You know, our our emphasis is that this is most important. But what's been interesting for me to see, spending time with uh, Asian lay Buddhists, is that they seem to be very inspired by this. You know, they 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 watch us and they're going, what, well, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and I would notice that on, on my trips to the to the monastery, you know, after uh, we would have these days of festivities, essentially, you know, several days a week the, when the double-decker Donna would come in, you know, the whole place was full of people and, and it was like this big party atmosphere. And we would socialize and eat and talk and, and uh, it, it was very, it was all very interesting. But I noticed that as the day went on, you know, as we, as we, as we neared the time when it was time for the all-night sit and the Dhamma talk, you know, that it was like, well, where'd everybody go, you know? The, the main people that were left behind were the Western Buddhists. And, and, and talking to them, um, talking to the Asian people about this, they were uh, interested to know, you know, that 
I had actually come from America to England to spend many, many months at the, at the monastery in order to learn the meditation <laughs> and to hear the Dhamma talks. And, and I remember talking to, to one woman and she said, you, you actually do the meditation? You know? I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and uh, she said, well, well, that's interesting, you know, tell me about it. And, 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 you know, I'm not saying that this is the general experience, or, but it does seem to be a common one. And it was certainly my experience. And it's not just in England. Um, Ajahn Amaro, who's one of the senior monks in, in this order, says that he travels back and forth from uh, the west to the east a lot. And, 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 and he's seeing it over there, too. He's, he calls it the pizza pie effect. Uh, and, and what he means by this, he says that, that uh, pizza was an, an Italian peasant food, essentially. Italians here can correct me if I'm wrong on this. <laughs> he says kind of an Italian peasant food, which found its way to America. But now it's gone back to Italy, and it's being received there as sort of a fine American delicacy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or at least it's gone up a few notches from, from what it was originally. And so, like he was saying, that this is how it is, that the, the, uh, the Asians are seeing the Asian and the Western monks teaching the Westerners the meditation practice. And, you know, they're sort of like, well, hey, you know, I want to learn that. What's going on here, you know? And then it, it's been somewhat my experience that, um, you know, us looking at punya, looking at uh, their performance of, of good deeds and their capacity for goodness, their practice of actually dwelling in it is, is something that we're experiencing as, you know, this feels good. <laughs> I like this and I want to learn, I want to learn more about it. I want, not that we don't do things you know, that are kind and good, but as a spiritual practice, you know, this is very, very fascinating um, area. So all of this has just kind of sparked my interest in the whole topic of it, and, and I uh, have done a little bit of, of study, certainly not an exhaustive study, and even just um, putting things together for this, and, and other times when I've talked about it, it's like, um, well, uh, there's a whole lot that I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to share with you some of the things that, that I've discovered about it by, by looking at the, the scriptures. So primarily I found that, that Buddha really puts a whole lot of emphasis on punya. There is a lot of emphasis on it in the teachings. And it's interesting that um, merit is often, or punya is often talked about in a very worldly way. Very interesting. Uh, a couple of the suttas I, I was looking at, uh, Buddha in one of them, Buddha identifies five worldly states that are sought after and lovely, but hard to get in the world. You know, five worldly states. And he said that these are long life and beauty, happiness, worldly status, and rebirth in heaven. And he points to punya, Merit, making of merit as the main means of getting these states. You know, this was kind of interesting to me. It's like a spiritual practice reaping material benefits, material results. Here's what he says. Long life, beauty, 
status, honor, heaven, high birth. To those who delight in aspiring for these things in great measure, continuously, the wise praise heedfulness in making merit. Performing good acts brings these kinds of results. And there, there are other suttas. One I found in the minor anthologies, uh, Buddha compares the making of merit to establishing a reserve fund. <laughs> it's like a bank account uh, that is capable of, of giving us all that we want. It's like building an account as you can cash in when you need it. Here's what he says. Uh, so prudent you should make merit. The fund that will follow you along. This is the fund that gives all they want to humans and divines, the, and the divine. Whatever devas aspire to, all that is gained by this. Here's a nice list. A fine complexion, fine voice, a body well-built, well-formed, lordship. And this one I thought was interesting, a following. <laughs> All that is gained by this. Earthly kingship, supremacy, the bliss of an emperor, kingship over devas in the heavens. All that is gained by this. The attainment of the human state, any delight in heaven, the attainment of Nibbana, all of that is gained by this. So powerful is this, the accomplishment of merit. Thus the wise, the prudent, praise the fund of merit. So the Buddha is clearly saying that, that good deeds bring many rewards, and some of them are quite worldly. And there are other suttas, you know, where we talk about karma, for example, kusala karma, and certain... Um, benefits that uh, accrue to us as a result of good, uh, performing good deeds. So, so this, is, this is some of the teaching, and, you know, I thought, well, this is really interesting. I mean, I can live with this, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a feeling, well, you know, it makes sense in a certain way, you know, that, that uh, we would see the results, we would bear, that, that, that our good deeds would bear fruits. Uh, even in a material way. It's kind of like, uh, as above, so below. If the heart is really pure and happy, that there's going to be a whole lot of different ways that that is manifest. And it made sense to me that this would be in a, in a worldly way. But I think it's really important to remember, too, that wisdom plays a very important part in it. And, um, you know, it's like the meditation practice, where... Uh, you know, if you, if you do the meditation practice in order to get enlightenment, you know, that it doesn't quite work that way. You know, that, uh, that just that thought or that uh, uh, wish for uh, something that is uh, self-serving actually will stand in the way of it happening. And the same is true with the um, performance of good deeds. You know, we can't actually do them. The teaching is really saying that it's, that these results will accrue, but if we do them for those results, there's a barrier, you know. And so I think there's some misunderstanding of this, certainly in some of the, the ways that I've seen the offerings done. There's a lot of, you know, uh, got to make merit, make merit, so that I can be reborn in a, in a happy state. But, you know, there can't be a so that in there. It just has to be a lot more pure than that. 
So as I looked further, and this was really interesting, I, I began to discover that the meditation practice actually is included in the list of punya. It's included in the list of meritorious actions that bring these results. All of these uh, form the basis of, uh, of punya. And it's looked at this way. Uh, it's divided into two categories. Uh, one is sort of external and one internal. And the external uh, merit includes such things uh, as uh, giving offerings to the monks and nuns to support them, providing the, the requisites, um, making donations to monasteries, uh, making uh, donations for the printing of Dhamma literature, th- this kind of thing. It actually includes keeping the precepts um, and performing devotional acts like we've been doing here uh, every Tuesday and Friday morning. It includes the lighting of candles, the lighting of incense, and chanting, chanting together. These are also devotional acts, and even the bowing. And then the internal uh, merit of punya includes such things as listening to talks, doing the meditation practice, developing the Brahma-viharas, cultivating the paramis. You know. But most important of all of these is the um, purifying the mind by doing the meditation practice. Now, so it's interesting. It's like, oh, wait a minute. We're onto something here. <laughs> you, know? it, it, you could sort of feel like, well, we're, we're both, you know, Asians and Westerners alike, really practicing punya, you know, each kind of having a piece of the pie, you know. But the, the whole thing, all of it, all of it constitutes uh, meritorious acts. All of it is good to do. You know, and, and I like this. Uh, uh, for me, it wasn't so clear to me before I began to look into it because it seemed like there was somewhat of a dichotomy going on here, but really it's not. It, it, you know, you, you have to hold it in a way uh, that um, includes both these internal and external forms of, uh, of good actions. So punya isn't limited to dana. It's not limited to those kinds of uh, acts of generosity. But it doesn't exclude the meditation practice either. This really really helped me a lot to understand it a little bit more. Now, it's interesting to note that the strength of good actions can be built upon and can be expanded. And and it's kind of like in the same way that we build a certain momentum in the meditation practice. You know, it's like how you're doing in in the first... uh, few weeks of meditation here during this retreat, or even a um, few days to a few weeks, it might have been a little hard to get it going, you know. But after a while, you, you start to establish a momentum of moving in a certain direction, and it's a lot easier, you know. And, and punya works in the same way. There is a certain momentum that gets built up, and you have this reserve, this reserve fund, like the Buddha referred to, your little bank account. And uh, this can be there. I mean, I, I like the allegory. It's, an, it's unfortunate in one sense, the bank account, because it kind of connotes a, a sort of a financial investment, like it's some kind of business venture, you know. But really, if, if you hold it more as an allegory, and see, it's like this investment that you have for hard times, when things are difficult. 
you know, you have this little reservoir, you have this reserve. And, and those kinds of difficulties could be difficulties in our lives, or it could be in the moment that there's this mind state, you know, <laughs> that is so strong and uh, it keeps wanting to get a hold of me. Well, the reserve that we have in store is actually something that can be very, very helpful in moments like that. Punya is said to dilute, to actually dilute, dilute the uh, effects of previous unwholesome actions. I like that. <laughs> it's like, you know, it sort of feels like grace to me, you know, there's got to be some way out, you know, and, and uh, this, is, this is it. It actually can neutralize, you know. Reminded me uh, of uh, Mother Mira. I remember one time talking to somebody who had gone to see her. She said that she was, uh, you know, she was one who could help you with your unwholesome karma, you know, but she didn't have the capacity to take it away, but she could dilute it, you know, she could make it easier to bear, she'd soften it a little bit. And this is kind of the feeling of punya. Here's, here's one of the passages uh, from the Anguttara Nikaya. This is the Buddha talking to the uh, assembly of monks and nuns. Now suppose a person were to throw some salt into a little cup of water, What do you think? Would that trifling amount of water in the cup become salty and undrinkable owing to that salt? It would, Lord. Why so? That water in the cup, Lord, being but little, would become salty and undrinkable thereby. Again, suppose a person were to throw some salt into the river Ganges. What do you think? Would the river Ganges become salty and undrinkable owing to that grain of salt? Surely not, Lord. Why not? Great, Lord, is the mass of water in the river Ganges. It would not become salty and undrinkable thereby. Well, just in the same way, the small offense of a person with few virtues would take him to the hell realms. And yet again, a small, the similarly small offense of a person with many virtues would not amount to much. So, you know, if the salt is the unwholesome karma and the water is the accumulated merit, you know, we can see that the, the vast amounts of, of merit really dilute the effects of the unwholesome karma. So this is, this is kind of why I wanted to talk to you about this tonight. Because <laughs> it's like, well, think about what you've been doing. <laughs> think about what you've been doing the last six or twelve weeks. You know, the whole time you have been accumulating an incredible reserve of merit. You know, it's like you're leaving here with a fat purse. <laughs> <laughs> And it's good to think about that. It's good to reflect upon it. <laughs> so I, I thought it would be good for us to take some time and uh, to, to give this uh, accumulation of merit that you have even in another shot in the arm. In, in Buddhism, we have this practice 
whereby we cultivate what I like to think about as sort of the antithesis, antithesis of a multiple hindrance attack. You know, this is like a, more like a multiple parami attack <laughs> or a multiple punya attack, you know. Um, we, we contemplate the goodness. Take some time and really, really feel the experience of the goodness of the deeds that you have been performing. And compound that, compound that by extending it out, by offering it to others, to each other, to your family, to your friends, to, to the world leaders, kings and queens, the sun and the moon, as it says in the chant, to everything. Just extend that out. And in so doing, you really um, compound the experience of that goodness. So, uh, I'd like to do this chant with you, okay? And I've made uh, copies. Can, can you pass? Take a few minutes for everybody to get them, but maybe somebody who's resourceful can help move it along a little bit faster. Oh, that'll leave me, leave me one. So this is a chant that actually has its um, basis in the teachings. You'll hear phrases in this chant. If many of you know it already, I know, but some, for some it will be new. There are a lot of um, phrases in this that appear in, in a number of the teachings, that kind of common phrases that get repeated. And what we do is we uh, reflect on the goodness of the practice and then bring in all these people into our life, into the feeling of that, and extend it out. Basically, reflecting that um, we're doing this in this act of sharing, we we want to uh, facilitate a process whereby all of our own desires and attachments will cease, any harmful states of mind will cease until we realize Nibbana. Does everybody have one yet? You're missing some? Oh, okay. Do we have more back there? Oh, I hope we have made enough. Maybe we'll have to share. So if you're not familiar with this form of chanting, it's a three-note chant. And there's a home note, and a note above, and a note below. And these are marked by a little sort of triangle above the... uh, It sort of will point up if you go up, and it's below the line if you go down. And the only thing else that you need to know is that the long lines, like under guides and virtuous and guardian, there's a long line under that. And um, those need to be held just a little bit longer. So you would say, guides of great virtue. You would hold that a little bit longer, okay? So let's just close your eyes for a minute. 
and take a few moments and, and reflect on the goodness that you have done in these past few weeks especially. Bring into your mind all the the kinds of uh, virtues that you have exhibited. The taking of the precepts, the holding of the precepts, really making diligent effort to sustain ethical conduct, good actions. Feel what that feels like. This is what you've done. The little gestures, the little acts of kindness, the times when you held a door for someone, moved out of their way, bowed your head so as not to disturb their practice, muffled a cough, as a means of support. And even if you feel like some of the things you've done haven't been so good, really put that out of your mind for now. It's like you really have to touch the place that knows that even in the midst of some of the things that we feel that we do that are sort of half-baked, you know, we don't quite get it. We aren't quite doing it as good as we think it should be done or could be done. But it doesn't matter. The effort is there and the goodness is there all the same. Even if it it doesn't feel like it's been entirely pure. Don't worry about that. And let it fill your heart. Let your kindness, your generosity, your compassion, your goodness, just really fill your heart and every pore of your being. This is what it feels like to be a human being. who has cultivated the states that really are what it is to be a human being. Buddha is very clear on his teaching that goodness is our natural state. That anything else that seems to contradict that is like an exception. So connect in this way, and you can feel the virtues even as you do it. It feels good. That in itself is one of the benefits. And when we chant, as we extend this goodness out to other people, 
another effect is that it actually can be received by other people. Some people can feel a little vague about this. And, and in one way, I guess we can't really know. But in the extending of kindness and goodness outwards, there's that sense that it has to be being felt somewhere. Certainly we felt it with people who are close to us. We have felt the exchange of happy and good hearts. And then in the holding of all of the people that we will chant about, in the holding of all of the kinds of people in our lives in this way, we will find that when we relate to these people, again, things are changed, things are better. When we hold people in our hearts in this way, you can't continue to relate to them with shades of darkness. So the sharing of merit is actually purifying the way that we interact with each other. Now let's chant. For those of you who know the chant, maybe you could show me, give me a show of hands. A couple, okay. We might, we might do it twice. We'll see how it goes the first time. <laughs> so those of you who know it, if you will, um, sing it out. <laughs> now, let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing,
May all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled. So my wish for you is that you leave here with a very heavy purse and that you spend it well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.